Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst on a single stock or industry. And today we're talking with Anirban Mahanti about a little known company called Apple. Anirban is a lead advisor at Seven Investing. And this show, I mean, everyone already knows what Apple does generally. I'm sure they're familiar with the brand, but Anirban has owned the stock for, I believe, a little more than a decade now. And I think going through the company in the eyes of a Nearbond really illustrates how well the buy right and sit tight approach can perform for investors. And this is a perfect example of it. He's owned this thing for 10 years. It's been a wonderful investment for him. Um, and a lot of his reasoning and a rationale in the early days was behind those qualitative assumptions, those the how he assessed the business in in the real world. And I think it's just a really fun example. And he goes through the business in great detail, talks about the investment as he sees it today. But before we get to that, we do want to say Seven Investing is a friend of the show. They come on the show all the time. You've probably heard a number of interviews that we've done, Anirpan, uh, like I said, as a lead advisor for them. And if you're interested in checking out any of their write-ups, they have a huge catalog of research now. I really do recommend going and checking it out. It, we use it all the time for kind of idea generation and, and exploring new companies to look at that you can get $100 off right now using the code CCM. And I believe we'll have a link in the show notes as well. So if you want to go direct through the link, go ahead, check it out. But that's CCM is the promo code. You get $100 off uh, the annual pass for 7investing. So like I said, go check it out. But without further ado, here's our interview with the Nirban Mahanti. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Today we are joined by Anirban Mahanti. I think I want to say like third time guest at this point. He's been on the show a number of times. Uh, he's a lead advisor at Seven Investing. We will link uh, to Seven Investing's website in the show notes. So go ahead, check him out. He has a lot of recommendations that you can peruse if you enjoy this. If you enjoy this episode, but we're talking about a company, uh, a little known company called Apple. I think that are they the biggest company in the world right now? They are. Okay. So yeah, I think most people know uh, know them, but Anirban, you have been an investor for quite a long time, if I'm not mistaken. So I guess why don't you take us through that? When did you first start investing in Apple? And do you remember why you what your initial thesis was? Yeah, so great question. Uh, you know, I've not been an investor for as long as I, I would hope I was. So my, my first, I think, purchase was late 2012. So still a little over a decade. Um, and I was just, you know, because we we're going to talk about this, I was just checking the, you know, cost basis. So my cost basis around those, you know, from the buys that I made, you know, 2012 and early 2013, you know, they would range between, say, 15 and $20, right? So, I mean, 
somewhere between a 10 bagger and an eight bagger or seven bagger in, in this time for a company, which was pretty large at that time, I thought, which I, which I think is pretty um, fabulous, which just speaks to sort of the, you know, one of the benefits of, uh, I guess, just buy and hold, right? You just need time to do its thing and good companies given time uh, can, you know, really deliver the goods. Um, why did I buy it? Well, um, I used to work at a place called Nikta uh, as a research scientist at that time. And there was a lot of buzz about Apple products. Uh, I had a colleague there who used to buy every new Apple product <laughs> uh, the moment it came out. Um, and I, of course, I was an iPhone user. Uh, I had an iPhone since uh, 2009. Um, so, you know, the fabulous experience, you know, using a, being a Mac user uh, since 2008, 2009. So, you know, have, have experience with their products and I love their products. And, you know, there's just the enthusiasm of the people lining up and to buy the product. The product is coming out, the excitement uh, that comes with the product, um, the sort of the leadership provided by Steve Jobs. Those were all the reasons. Like, I didn't look at financials at that time when I bought the stock. I didn't look, I didn't think, oh, is the PE reasonable or is the valuation reasonable? I said, look, this is, you know, I just thought this company makes fabulous products for the people who buy these products, you know, uh, or use these products, love buying them again and again. You know, they have a fanatical following. This the stuff is like incredibly well made. Even the packaging, you know, the joy opening, opening the packaging, all of those, you know, it was all the qualitative aspects uh, driving it, right? And my wife at that time had a, had a Samsung uh, phone. And we, but we purposefully had one Samsung and one uh, Apple. Uh, just to experience the two different things. And she said, I don't like your stuff more. You know, why do I have this? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the next cycle of upgrades, you know, she, you know, she moved on to having an Apple phone. And then there's always been a question of who has the latest version because we, we unlike some really fervent fans who upgrade every, um, um, you know, every, I would say, uh, year, we sort of upgrade every two years. So, you know, that's that's still a pretty regular cadence, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like you've got the Apple AirPod Maxes on the <laughs> headphones. Yes, I do. Yeah, well, we have a lot of Apple gear in this house. Uh, you know, the AirPods and the Max AirPods and the HomePods, and uh, yeah, there's a this this household runs on Apple. Um, yeah, <laughs> if some of this stuff doesn't work, it'll be a problem. I uh, I'm quite the Apple user myself, Brett is an android user correct yeah that is correct although i do have an ipad although i did get that one for free but yeah i it doesn't i get complaints all the time people tell me what am i switching which i'm a little bit stubborn about it but that is a fantastic you know positive investment indicator it is funny that or go ahead go ahead please no, no, I was just going to say that one of the things I used to do in all my previous uh, roles that I've had is that, you know, you know, when I was, used to work for the Motley Fool at one point, you know, I used to be a very a big Apple proponent. And I, I can take credit for converting a number of people to from Windows to Macs and, you know, Androids to Apple. Um, yeah, we have a small business that we run and, you know, one of the things I look at, hey, are you familiar with Apple tools? Because all our business runs on Apple. <laughs> so, uh, the, you know, Recently, one of the ladies who worked there, she, you know, moved from an Android to the latest Apple phone. So, yeah, you know, the Apple fans do that. They, you know, sort of push people to move, you know, th th that's what Tim Cook calls the switches. Yeah, it seems like their customers are sometimes their best salesmen. Um, let's talk through the business, though. 
obviously a lot of moving parts here. So, I mean, you just mentioned all the different product lines they have. What drives the business today? What do you see as the important revenue generators? Yeah, so at a high level, see, Apple is a hardware and a software business, right? Now, uh, or I should say hardware and a services business. The hardware really, hardware line, you know, the best way to think about Apple is to go to Apple's webpage and you can see what stuff they have lined up there. And that's basically the main revenue generators for them. It's pretty, pretty transparent. So, you know, iPhone happens to be their biggest revenue um, generator that they have. Of course, the iPad, they've got the Mac line, and then they've got what they, they bundle a bunch of things, which they call the um, the home and wearables and accessories business. <laughs> now, over time, I guess one of the main things that, that has happened is um, previously, Apple was mostly in hardware business. Um, and majority of revenues, and some, at one point, maybe 60, 65% of revenues were coming from the iPhone, right? And that was back in, say, 20, say 2016, 2017, one of the big issues with people was, <clears throat> or investors were, happened to be, well, if the iPhone, iPhone upgrade cycle slows down, this company is going to be really hurt because that's its bread and butter. And, you know, people were, their, their upgrade cycles were elongating and things like that. But at the same time, Apple was working on what, what I'd call the services business, which is things like, you know, iCloud subscriptions, Apple TV Plus, you know, Apple Music, Apple Fitness, um, you know, all the, you know, the various services that can, that can Apple Care, uh, which is basically providing extended warranties and things like that. And it's built that over time. And today, the business sort of looks like roughly, I'd say 55% of the revenues come from, 50-55% come from iPhone, Right. About close to 20% of revenue today is coming from services, right? Which is very interesting because this business did not really exist. Let's say if we go back five, six years, it was a really small component. Um, and the rest of the stuff is, you know, between the Mac and the, um, the, the wearables and so on. What I think, though, is interesting is if you look at, you know, uh, the, the product um, revenue distribution, I think this is, this is what is interesting is that you know, if I if I ask people, what do you think is the second biggest line um, after the the iPhone, right? And, and that happens to be actually services, right? So services is almost getting close to an eighty billion dollar run rate today, and um, it probably would hit hundred billion maybe in a couple of years, right? Think of this from the point of view of a company which has a trailing revenue of about say 380, 390 billion. That's a lot coming from services. The services has already moved to number two position. What I think is it's, it'd be hard for people to think of what's number three, right? And number three uh, is, it's a, it's a far number three in the sense that, you know, the gap between the two, you know, the gap as much as there's a gap between one and two, there's a gap between two and three. And the, and the third position today is held by the wearables and home and accessories, you know, that speaks volumes to Apple success in say, for example, the Apple Watch. And the AirPods, the smaller ones, not the, the big ones, right? So those those have been really popular, and and the accessories business and the wearables business has really done really well. Again, this this business has grown from pretty much nothing, right? It used to be a really small business. There were there were no AirPods, if you know, at Steve Jobs' times. There was no Apple Watch at Steve Jobs' time, 
Um, Beats was a relatively, you know, it was a Tim Cook acquisition, right? So I think so that's how the business is. It's basically selling hardware to people and then getting people into the ecosystem, getting them to then sort of subscribe to different services, right? And you have different tiers of services that you can buy today. Like I'm a, you know, whatever is the highest Apple One plus plus tier, you know, because we have the terabytes of storage and we have pretty much every Apple service. So we just have the Apple One business, you know, thing. And I didn't even talk about anything like the other ancillary things that they're doing in services, which is like, you know, Apple Pay, Apple, you know, buy now, pay later, Apple savings account and all the financial fintech stuff that they've been doing. Now, you talked about how investors were worried about the, let's call it the cyclicality risk of iPhone or the iPhone segment. Has that, do you think that's totally gone now? And if so, why? Like, how did they solve that potential issue that, you know, plagues a lot of hardware makers? Yeah, so I think, okay, so there's a, the answer is yes and no, which is just like, you know, it's a funny way to answer things, right? Because I think the cyclicality, is there, it was always there. But I think that at the same time, I don't think the cyclicality is that big a deal, right? And I'll explain it. So let's go back to the 2016, 2017, around that time when Apple's PE was like, you know, price to earnings was really low because they were thinking of this like as a hardware maker, you know. Um, how many iPhones were out there at that time? Probably half a billion iPhones were out there. Today, probably a billion out iPhones, billion plus iPhones are out there, right? Now, the way I think about this is, I just think, you know, you can think of it as a cyclicality, or I think it's just as a recurring revenue model, right? Because Apple as a company is actually making sure that its products run as long as they can potentially run. So they're, you know, giving you up, you know, they, they provide you software updates for as long as they potentially can for a hardware device, right? Make them better, make them more useful. Um, they would provide warranty coverage for it. So they want you to use it for a long time. But if you've got, let's say, a billion iPhones out there, and even if you assume that four years is sort of the lifespan of these devices, then, you know, you're still looking at 250 million odd, uh, you know, replacement phones each year on average, right? And some years it's going to be more because there's been maybe an exciting feature that has come out that people want. Some years less because maybe the economic climate is not that good. But that recurring revenue business from, and you know, that's the thing with these type of hardwares is that you know they don't have infinite lifespan, right? However good it gets, you know, maybe five years people are going to push it to, but there is a recurring model for these phones, right? And then the mix will change a little bit, and then you know, then when you factor in things like Apple's push into countries, um, emerging economies, that's that's been a huge push lately, and they've been trying this for a long time. Um, but it's only starting, I think, to take effect now. Whereas the pu that's pushing to say India or Vietnam, those countries are growing at a really fast pace. And I can tell you honestly, like, you know, um, Android has a huge, uh, vast uh, user base. But if you talk to a, a, you know upper middle class Indian person, for example, they would love to have an Apple iPhone. The, br the brand like is still strong, right? It's the brand is strong, yeah. exactly. They want it. The only reason they don't have it probably is the cost or whatever. But, you know, if they can convince people that you can get this phone and you can stick to it for five years, there will be a lot of switches coming. So I think the story about the switches is not done. And I think Apple's share is likely to increase over time than decrease because the brand is that powerful. And this is one of the things that they've done is they've, they have very 
cleverly cultivated the brand, right? Whether it's about privacy, whether it's about security, whether it's about ensuring that you, everything stays on your device, whether making the device better and intuitive to use. It's all about Apple cares about you. We charge you and we care about you. You are our customers. You, Your data, what you're doing is not what we're interested in. We are interested in helping you, right? And that's the messaging. Uh, that they have used, and that's actually, I think it's working, right? Oh, if you look at the year where your growth rates in in those countries, then it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like you know, Apple. A lot of the times, they have the best product in their category, right? But sometimes, you know, sometimes there might be a better one technology that goes out there. Whenever I say have a conversation with someone about, say, a new tablet or a new watch or whatever, they always immediately think that the Apple product is the best, even though you know. Most of the time it is, even if if it's not at that point, they still have that brand perception that it is the best. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the brand is a huge deal and the brand means something. Opening, for example, those retail stores and Tim Cook was there in India. The reason to do that was, and you could see the lines that we have seen here in Sydney. People, you know, in the past used to see these lines because now everybody buys stuff online. Um, Those lines are incredible. That just shows how much people care about this brand and how much people want this brand. So I think they've got an incredible um, brand. Uh, brand they cultivate it very nicely. They care for their customers. Customer service has always been A-rated. Like you know, if you go to their store for a service, you are going to get the service. They never try to sell you something. You see that you know Microsoft had stores, nobody was there. Apple had stores just next door, everybody was there. Um, it's just I think when it comes to consumers and understanding consumers, they do a great job. So that that's their superpower in many ways. Yeah, hundred percent. I I have I think there's like a million rabbit holes we could go down here with Apple because there's so many different segments to their business. But I wanted to touch on the services side of things. For anyone that doesn't follow Apple closely, and I know they aren't entirely open about it, if I remember correctly, but what makes up the majority of those that that services revenue? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, and it's hard to um, to know because they don't really give us the the breakdown, right? But I would assume that you know, and and the only way I guess I I try to read into this is if you read a ten k, which is the annual report, and if the ordering of certain things are pro- provided in a certain order and they're not alphabetic, that's probably indicative of something, um, right? And so I think App Store revenue is up there, um, you know, uh, TAC, so which is, uh, you know, for, for traffic acquisition costs that other companies pay to Apple. So this would be like, you know, people like Google, for example, um, they would be up there. Uh, I would think iCloud would be up there, sort of, you know, then Apple Music um, and then, you know, maybe Apple Fitness and um, and then probably some of the other things, right? Um, I think financial services, uh, uh, like Apple's fintech services have been actually, uh, they grow, they're growing really quickly, but I think they're uh, from a revenue generation point of view, they're relatively small. Well, what is small for Apple is really big for other people, but it's small for Apple, right? Um, so I would think that Apple's, uh, uh, you know, Apple Pay and all the other related services actually are small contributors. Uh, to the total revenue, but, yeah. The, my my guess would be it's the App Store, um, App Store probably, and the iCloud. Those are the biggest contributors, and maybe potentially followed by you know Apple Care, uh, and then you know Apple Music and things like that. Uh, but I think the other thing to think about though is that some of those businesses have higher margin relative to others. 
right? So um, if the fintech services probably are very high margin, um, you know, uh, iCloud probably is high margin, uh, but things like Apple Music, for example, may not be high margin because, you know, there's a lot of revenue that, you know, there are a lot of cost of goods that they have to pay back to the, you know, the record labels and the artists and things like that. So there's that that aspect uh, to, to consider. But yeah, I would say those are, um, you know, like, but, but I think the way I think about this though is, um, the, you know, and we can come to this later. We can ask the question, and I've been thinking about this a little bit. You can ask it, why did Apple do provide services, right? And, and you know, one of them is, yes, they can provide a better alternative or an alternative that suits their customers, right? But I think the other reason could be that Apple wanted a platform of services, owned services that would help it, that could help the company actually build or innovate the next computing platform. Right. And if you talk about you know, Vision Pro later on, then I think there is a link here um, that, you know, this is a company that is an incredibly long-term thinker. So if you think about, you know, you want to change experiences, then the best way to, you know, and you can't always depend on developers and other people coming online because they've seen this doesn't really work very well, right? You know, um, so Netflix, for example, does not allow a lot of integration with Apple TV. It has reduced its integration. It has made um, things like payment via, you know, the Apple Pay, Apple Store harder. Um, or, you know, if you've been paying for it in the past, then it's okay, but you can't no longer do that, right? So the, the, experience, the frictions, so one way, to, if you want to completely innovate in computing experience, then you actually need to own services because then you can show people this is how things should be and then other people will follow. So I think that's what, it, you know, I think there's a story behind services and that's largely around, you know, these two sort of new areas. One is wearables. Oh, it's mostly around wearables if you think about it, but it's really wearables around, you know, glasses and wearables around uh, the wrist. Um, so it's really health and entertainment and other experiences in computing that can change. So I think the services are really a driver for that. Okay. I have, I guess, kind of a two-part question here. So first of all, I think maybe one misconception, especially in the U.S., is that Apple is the dominant mobile operating system globally because it is here in the US but if i'm not mistaken i think android has around 70% of the global smartphone operating system market so i guess how far do you think uh apple can kind of carve into that um you know are are they having success abroad in in, in different places i know you mentioned you called out a couple of of other geographies but maybe how much uh headroom do you think they can make there and then the other question is what segment of apple specifically do you think will be growing the fastest over the next kind of five to ten years yeah, great question. So I, I think, you know, like if, if this, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think it's probably like something like 70, 30, Android 70, or maybe even 80, 20 uh, could be Android has 80%. Because in countries like, for example, India and Vietnam, those the number of Android users is, is eight in just sheer volume is high. And then the percentage is like 95%, right? Everybody has an Android or a feature phone basically that runs on Android. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for, you know, Apple to creep that number up over time. Now, it, I think it would never get close to what it is in the US. In US, I think it's like, you know, Apple is like 40% or something like that, or 45%. I don't think it'll get there, but potentially it could get to as high as 20% in many of those emerging markets, right? Which would then tip the balance over. 
to some extent. So, I mean, you know, and every, you know, if you get, if it goes from 80, 20 to 70, 30, that's actually a big deal. It'll happen over time. But I think, yeah, I, I think that there's a good potential for that happening. Like places like India, for example, could have 20%, 25% iPhone penetration, uh, you know, or iOS penetration, um, given how the ecosystem really works, you know, and many other countries like Vietnam and so on could be the case. So I think that's definitely the, uh, in terms of like revenue growth, I, I sort of look at, it's really hard because, again, Apple is secretive. It doesn't really tell us what's in the pipeline. But I, I really feel like services have a lot of legs um, and they haven't really pulled all the levers. You know, And then many ways to look at services. But you know, if you have good services, people want, because the services are linked to devices, people want to buy your devices. If people buy your devices and you have good services, then they, you know, they're going to subscribe to those things. It's a little bit of this loop that they've got, uh, they've got going. But you know, for example, they could do an ad. Like I personally feel like Apple TV Plus has some of the best programs available really nicely uh, curated. Um, but they're expensive for people for the small catalog, but they could, for example, run an ad tier. Right. Uh, if Netflix can run an ad tier, why not run an ad tier or maybe make an ad tier available, for example, in India for a very low subscription cost. Right. And, and that that could work. So I think services is li are likely to grow, have the fastest growth rate for the business, because especially as as sort of their hardware array expands, services should expand, whether it is in entertainment, whether it's in, in finance, whether it's in health. Like health is another like Tim Cook is on record saying that health is going to be the biggest impact that Apple is going to have, right? And we haven't really seen anything substantive in terms of health services out there from Apple. We have seen a lot of health devices, you know, so, you know, AFib and, you know, um, the heart rate stuff and all of that stuff, the ECG that they're doing or uh, VO2 max, those are all health related things that they're doing, but they haven't really leveraged that opportunity yet. Right? So I think, so I, I, th I really think services is going to be the growth the the growth engine. Yeah. And with that health stuff, it seems like there's a lot of runway to reinvest into new products. I want to talk about something that also may have a long runway for reinvestment and is something I think a lot of listeners are either, you know, excited about or is on the top of their mind. And it's the Vision Pro. It is the new mixed reality device just for any context for the listeners. It's the one they're releasing in early 2024. It's going to cost $3,500 and seems to have uh, some big time technological breakthroughs. So I want to just keep this as an open-ended question. Anir Bond, as someone who's followed this company for a long time, what are your thoughts as an investor on the Vision Pro? You know, my number one thought, you know, that's not even as an investor, is that how soon can I get my hands on this device? <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be up there clicking to get the device as soon as made available in, uh, in Australia, uh, which unfortunately is not uh, among the launch countries, right? So usually Australia is among the launch countries, but this time it is not. Um, I, I'm actually I'm very excited about this. I'm very excited because this, the tech, as you just mentioned, the tech breakthroughs that they have introduced here is just mind boggling. So for example, the new input model where, you know, you have these very fine gestures that you're making with your, you know, fingertips and, and they're not like, you know, placed here, they're placed like, you know, on your lap and it's able to detect that with no delays and work like in a buttery smooth way. That is just phenomenal. Like there's and, nothing uh, like that. With no controllers. Right. With no controllers, exactly yeah. with no controllers. So you're using your eye and your hand. Now, I'm sure other people are going to copy it, but I don't think something like this exists in even the top research labs today. 
So this is a phenomenal, like I think just this shows the depth of like, you know, the vision work, the artificial intelligence work and the, you know, the semiconductor work, the, the depth of that knowledge is in full display here. Like this is the other thing I guess I forgot to mention is that Apple as a company, we think of Apple as a hardware device company, but you know, if I, you know, if you have to ask, which is the largest chip maker in the world, the answer would be Apple. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you know they design their chips. They're the, you know potentially the best chip designers, right? And I like to say you know people think about Nvidia. So if Apple wanted to kill Nvidia's business, they just needed to decide that they want to, and they could, because they have the skill set in in the house. Now they might you know like every business decides, okay, I'm going to only do this because this works for me. So they're probably not going to get into you know selling GPUs, but they you know they probably have the best GPUs if they wanted to. So I, I think the 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 full display of Apple's capabilities across the, the tech stack, whether it is hardware, software, you know, assembly language, you know, machine learning, um, you know, semiconductors and display with, uh, with Vision Pro, which I think was, uh, you know, was really, really uh, like astounding in terms of the amount of work that they've put into it. So um, I, to, in my mind, it, the Vision Pro came across as a device that is being positioned as I think as a replacement, or at least as a very nice companion to your Mac. So, because, you know, you could actually do work on it. It's been, and it's a standalone computer, right? So if you think about it as a standalone computer with a screen that is like two 4K TVs uh, sitting near your eyes, that gives you all this perception of, you know, depth and width and things like that, uh, you know, an immersive experience, then the $3,500 a price point doesn't look like you know it has the the top end processor that a Mac would have right an M2 or whatever it has M2 Ultra I'm not sure exactly but so I, th I think I think it it looks like it's a work companion device along with an entertainment device along with um, um, you know potentially a gaming device right so that's how it has been positioned um, yes yeah, so I think the technology there is um, in terms of the input. New input model is very exciting. The experience of augmented reality, you know, the immersion experience, I think is, is again, I think one of the biggest disadvantages this product has is that you can't really demo it the way you, have, you can demo other things because you, you have to experience to actually, I think that's the biggest drawback you've got in terms of getting sales is you can't get the 3D effects and the immersion effects unless you're actually a user, right? But Anyone who has actually tried it on is just going, okay, this is like, it was a aha moment for them, right? And there's an array of reviewers who have tried it and they're just saying, okay, this, was, this is something that you have to use to experience, you know, to experience, to understand uh, the step change. But, but I think, yeah, so they're basically reinventing computing in a way here with spatial uh, computing. And uh, yeah, it's going to be really exciting, but I think it's a more of a Mac and a Apple TV sort of thing replacement or, or, or adjacent to that sort of device that th this is being position positioned in. Wouldn't surprise me if, you know, in, in 10 years, a lot of people have these things and they'll become much sleeker over time, uh, wearing them and moving around. Right now, it seems like a, a far fetch that, you know, people are going to do that, but when I go to do my school pickup uh, for my daughter, and I see all these children coming out from school. You know, they do have an iPhone, they have an airport, and they're just walking like this. <laughs> and the teachers are telling them, oh, what's the traffic, right? So, they, so in, a, in a way, people are already wearing something. The stuff that they're wearing is the iPhone. <laughs> Why not just put the iPhone on your, you know, it's actually safer that way <laughs> because you actually have um, the, 
the environment in front of you so because the environment doesn't vanish right so that's the key thing here and you you can see the environment how much of the environment you want to see is decided by you and also by the environment i guess if you know, people come close to you then you can see them for sure we were talking before the show uh or before we hit record that a lot of people doubt apple's ai and machine learning capabilities do you think it i guess why do you think that's uh why do you think they're wrong to doubt it? And do you think the Vision Pro is maybe one of the biggest examples to demonstrate that they have that power? Yeah, so I think part of it is just like, so right now, every tech company is, is an AI company, right? So we we can go and read uh, conference transcripts and basically you'll see how many times the word AI has been uttered. And, you know, all executives are being pushed to utter the word AI. Um, so it was like 70 times that, you know, uh, Sundar Pinchai said it because Microsoft, you know, Satendela said it <laughs> maybe more. So he's now forced to say. It. So uh, there's a there's a subtle rub uh, that Tim Cook applies in all of this is that it, the entire WWDC and they probably didn't utter the word AI even once, <laughs> right? Uh, and I, I think part of this is is a way of telling the community that look, telling. It's maybe nice and fascinating for analysts and other people who are analyzing companies to know you're doing this AI stuff and it's going to be all mind boggling, right? Consumer actually doesn't care, right? Because a consumer really cares about, I have certain things that I want to do. Can you make that happen for me? Or can you give me an experience that I didn't have that I really want to have? They, didn't, they don't need to know whether it's AI or some voodoo or some magic, right? They just need that experience. And I think what that what Apple is basically has always focused on is that you have to deliver the experience and you have to deliver the product that people want, not a buzzword. Um, so I think that's one thing. So the and 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 the other thing that happens with Apple, which is different from other companies, is I remember a few years back there was a uh, alphabet demo uh, that was done, which was very interesting which was like, you know, you could call, you made a call and the call went to like a, you know, an AI and then, it, you know, it spoke with you and it made, for example, a, a reservation at a, a restaurant for you, right? It was a very cool demo, but where's the product? That's been a couple of years. There has been no product, right? So a lot of companies have these demos that they do because the wind is blowing in a certain way. Apple never does that because, you know, they just keep those things hidden. Um, but as, as we, as we just saw with vision pro, well, all these products that exist, you know, they're significantly inferior to, to Apple today. And the tech that they've got there is mind boggling, whether it is, you know, the, the immersion, immersive experience that you've got, whether it is the eyesight that they've developed, where, you know, the fact that you need to be able to see the human computer interaction components that they've thought about, the controllers that they've thought about, which is, you know, the new input model using just your fingers um, and your eyes, all of that stuff, a lot of these things require, uh, as I said, you know, work across the stack, but a significant amount of AI is built into these things. So Apple is constantly building AI into its tools. It just doesn't talk about it. And I think, you know, sometimes analysts think that, you know, they're falling behind, but I really, you know, for a company that has basically displaced Intel completely from the chart of being the leading semiconductor company, um, I think you know saying that they, they don't know what they're doing is I think a little bit far fetched, right? But they have they have a more of a consumer product oriented, service oriented focus. So they want that to speak and not the technology. Technology is a means to an end, and they're focused on the end. And I think a lot of other companies get caught up 
in 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 the means because it seems to help with the stock price in the interim. And it, it kind of reminds me of when there was that interview with Bezos way back when, when the interviewer was like, are you guys a tech company or a retail company? They're like, it doesn't matter. We're, we're a customer focused company. It feels like yeah. analysts are like, are you an AI company? No, um, I guess I, I know this, this will be kind of a tough question to answer because there's a lot, but what do you think are Apple's biggest competitive advantages? Um, and then who do they actually compete with? It's a competitive advantage. I think we can, you know, so Apple, we can say like, you know, if you think about Mort, Apple is, you can think of it as a wide Mort company, like say an Alphabet or Microsoft, right? Um, in terms of competitive advantages, you know, say number one is brand, right? So brand and the brand affinity is like the, the brand power is significant. Um, that's one. They've got scale advantages, right? Because like, think about it this way. For another company to design something like Vision Pro, it's going to be very difficult because, you know, the number of components Vision Pro could share with other lines of Apple devices, right? Same thing with the, the processor, for example, right? That allows you to amortize costs. It allows you to also use the best things that you have in other parts and not have to buy that or source that or, or invent that, right? So I think the scale um, is, is another immense thing that they've got. And the scale is not just in terms of product scale, but it's in customer scale, in terms of you know, retail footprint scale. Those are like, you know, this is just built over time. Um, then I think the other key thing for them is they are a company that control, and very few companies are very good at this. They, they control the sort of the entire experience and the protocol, or let's call it the technology stack. Right. So whether it is the hardware, the software, and you know, whether it's the chip, the GPU, the CPU, the you know, the memory processing, the AI neural engine, that's all inbuilt in-house, right? Significant control on roadmap. So they know what the roadmap is, they decide, and you know, they're in control of their destiny to a large extent. So that actually really helps them. Um, they've got a bit of pricing power, I would say, as well, because uh, you know, of their reach with their customers. And yeah, I don't, you know, and again, I think this this integration, they've got a lock-in effect as well, right? I mean, you know, if I've got an iPad, an iPhone, and this and that, you know, I'm more likely to get a Vision Pro than ever think of getting an Oculus, right? Because, you know, that lock-in effect really, you know, if you've got one device, you're going to probably buy the other devices. So I think those sort of things really work in their favor. So those, those are their, really their big strengths, I think, as a, as a company. And I, I think at a higher level, they are very long-term focused. And... If you look at other comparable companies at scale, they are very good in terms of managing their R&D spend. So a great example would be Apple could produce Vision Pro. How much money did they really spend on Vision Pro? And just compare how much money Meta has burned trying to get Oculus and its Meta, you know, metaverse going, right? So it's it's just sometimes it's not just about how much money you throw, but it's about how you manage it. So they're they are very good, a very capital conscious as a business. Right. And, you know, this, I think, is an important thing that it often is not thought about. Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree with that. I think we don't have to talk about the metaverse stuff with, with meta, but because uh, that would be a whole another 30 minute conversation of and there's a lot of uncertainty there. But I do want to maybe talk about who their competitors are, because it seems like Android versus Apple. It's very separate. You know, it's almost like it's a it's very symbiotic. I mean, Google and Apple have a very strong relationship. Are, are there really competitors out there? Because 
I mean, some could argue maybe even like WhatsApp is kind of a competitor to iMessage and stuff like that. I mean, what do you see as maybe the competitive threats to Apple today? Let's look, I think they compete. So I think they compete with different players in different areas, right? And there's a lot of competition. It's like, so whether if you think about, for example, if you take the Mac line, that competes with a whole bunch of Windows and other, you know, these Chrome OS-based stuff, right? So there's strong competition there. If you think about uh, wearables, they mostly won that battle, but there is still, you know, the various Android wear and stuff, you know, Samsung wear and Google is doing something there. So there's competition there. Um, there's competition in these these sort of things, right? Trillions of companies make these uh, these these things. Uh, there's of course Android versus uh, you know uh, iPhone competition. So there's Samsung, there's HTC um, in terms of devices. So I think there's tons of competition. Then in terms of services, there's a lot of competition, right? So there's you know if you think about buy now pay later, for example, they've launched this, they're late to launch. There's so much competition. Almost all services have significant competitors uh, in them. So there's a lot of competition, and but I think Apple's upside really is that for uh, Apple's customers, providing um, instead of services and devices that they would like to use is their upside really, right? You know, within their own ecosystem and slowly growing their ecosystem is what they're really trying to do. Um, but there's a lot of competition and, then, you know, in, in consumer electronics, there's a lot of competition always. So that, I think there's a lot of competition, but there's not, you know, what I think what you're referring to, there's no direct like competition, but it's not a monopoly like search, right? It's it's not a monopoly like search. And search is a really a monopoly. <laughs> there's like, you know, if you think about it, there's just, just a monopoly. Um, but there isn't a monopoly here uh, in, in that sense. They have a strong hold on customers. Right. Yeah. And we'll get to uh, any, uh, I have a do have a follow up in the risk section about any potential antitrust leg- legislation. So we will hit that. Any listeners who's interested about that. But first, I want to talk about valuation, just general thoughts on that. I know it's trading at, you know, the trailing multiples at a premium level. So I guess what are your thoughts on what sort of returns, you know, forward returns Apple investors should expect, especially at a market cap of, are we at three trillion again? I know the buyback made it, so it's not, it's a little bit low. No, we're not, we're not, we're a little bit, I think we're about 2.8 trillion. So the question is, do you, uh, are you cool for me to share a sheet and we can talk? Oh yeah, let sheet. me, I'll, I'll do i uh, I'll let you, okay. You should be able to share. Go ahead. Okay, so let me see. Let me see. This this might be a different way of share screen. Okay. All right. Can you see my screen now? Perfect. Yes. Okay. So this is a rough. So this is a rough model, and this is actually maybe this is a way to think about valuation. This is what I call a reverse DCF. Um, so it's not a. I'm not trying to build a discounted cash flow model. What I'm doing is I'm using a simple discounted cash flow model to understand what is baked into the share price today, right? Which will answer sort of your question as to what's the upside. And you, it's all qualitative stuff. I'm not making a quantitative, trying to make a quantitative judgment. So the inputs are really uh, what, what's Apple's free cash flow trailing last twelve months? You know, close to hundred billion dollars. Uh, you know, what's this net cash position? You can do it based on total cash and total debt, but it's really what matters is what's the net cash position because you're going to use that to calculate the enterprise value, uh, total shares out. Um, and it's just a simple model where you just are trying to predict what is the in what is the free cash flow growth rate baked in for the first decade, assuming a certain terminal rate and a certain discount rate. Okay, so I've always fixed for these sort of models the discount rate between nine and eleven percent. And the reason, the logic behind that is, 
So between nine and ten percent is what the S and P five hundred returns on over the long term. So I just use that as the as the discount rate. Now this is not got you know people would use the WAC and things like that. I just try to simplify things because my my theory with all of these things is all models are wrong because they're by definition they're models and they have lots of assumptions. But what I'm trying to do is some models are useful. I'm just trying to get some useful insight here. Right. So I fix my discount rate at ten percent. Um, I generally fix my terminal rate at three or four percent. So I give an Apple at four percent uh, terminal rate, and then based on today's share price, I'm just reverse solving for the growth rate of free cash flow. That's which would allow the current share price to be a fair value today, intrinsic value today. So that works out to be actually eleven percent, which is which is which is not nothing. Right, uh, you'd expect the free cash flow to grow. It's basically the market. You know, one way to think is the market is saying that free cash flow should at least grow at eleven percent over the next decade, um, which means in a, in a ten years from now, roughly two hundred and eighty billion dollars of free cash flow, just you know two and a half times, two point seven times of where it is today. Right, possibly doable. Uh, so that's one way to you know um, to cross check that you know if Apple can grow its services business. At a decent clip, um, you know, it should be able to do it. Another way to think about this is to get free cash flow to grow at say 10%, 11%. You, you probably need your revenue to grow between at a high single digits. You know, mid to high single digit revenue growth should be enough. Right? But that's basically saying that Apple is basically fairly valued. Right? It's not, so it's not market beating in that sense, right? But I think the, the one thing that is not considered in this in this uh, you know reverse DCF is the total number of shares out, which is up here, right? Because I did not change it. Um, I'm not changing it. I'm keeping it fixed. But we know that what what is Apple doing? It's free cash flow. When it generates hundred billion dollars of free cash flow, it basically just buying back its shares. Which means we can almost be certain that as long if if Apple is on the trajectory to generate these billions of dollars of free cash flow that we have got here. On, on the spreadsheet, it's going to be used to reduce the number of shares that it owns uh, that are outstanding, which means if you think about from that point of view and you think it was capital allocation strategy, then I think it's, you know, it's, you, you get to a point of, well, it's potentially quite market beating from here on, as long as they can keep generating the free cash flow because the share count is just going to decrease. Like Apple's share count is down by 40% over the last decade or so. It won't be down that much in the next decade, but even if it's down like say 20%, that's gonna be enough to deliver market beating returns, right? And there's, then there's upside in terms of if the revenue grows faster or things change, then you know you, you can get, right? So yeah, it's, it's, in other words, the price is not, um, I wouldn't say the price today is something that, you know, like it's like, you know, an obvious buy. It, you know, I think the only time that I felt it was an obvious buy was in like 2016, 2017, 2018, when people were like, you know, pricing it for like death and it was trailing at a trading at like a 10% free cash flow yield. Today it's trading trading at roughly a 3.5% or 3% free cash flow yield. Still significantly better than many of the other companies which trail at 1% free cash flow yield, uh, or other companies that do not generate any free cash flow and have no plans, or looks like have no plans of generating free cash flow. So um, you know, I, I think it's a fair deal, and I think there's a good chance of market beating returns from here, but it's you know. Uh, it's it's not the same thing as buying, you know, at, at $150 or $120, $130, it's like, okay, it makes sense to, you know, so when the panic button hits, and you always get this, when the panic button hits, you know, 
companies like Apple are good ones to buy because you know the chances are that nothing has significantly changed for these businesses. And so, just to kind of rehash what you just said there, because it might be it might be sometimes hard. We we go through this all the time where we talk a bunch of numbers, and then listeners might be like, "All right, I'm lost." So, uh, you're saying that the market is basically forecasting or expecting 11 percent free cash flow growth. However, with Apple plowing so much of that into buybacks, you know, you could potentially get uh, they're not factoring that in, so you could potentially get higher returns. Uh, at eleven percent growth, like you said, that isn't nothing. I mean, eleven percent growth—that's that's a good amount, especially for a business that's generating what is it, four hundred billion dollars in sales every year, or some, somewhere around that. Um, I guess my question to you is: If you weren't a shareholder for the last ten years, would you be buying today, or would you just? I know it's a little difficult, a little more difficult. Yeah. Have kind of the maybe not the yeah. emotional connection, but you know you've been with them for so long. Yeah, so like uh, I, I, that's I think that's the ownership bias coming into play. So here's the as I said, so um, I think that something like you know 11 percent of free cash flow growth is baked into the share price, assuming no buybacks. Um, that I think, and then and I think it's free cash flow. Is the, key, the key thing is that the free cash flow can grow at a faster rate than the revenue. So the revenue actually growth doesn't have to be very high. Is so I think the amount of revenue growth that's baked in is actually not that high. I think high single digits is probably you know somewhere between seven eight percent is what's baked in. So if they can surprise on the upside, then there's a lot of surprise potential there. Um, it's, you know, put it this way, like I think the portfolio construction is such a personal thing. Like I mean, I almost hold Apple like as an anchor core position, right? And if I didn't have it, I would still have it. Because it's it's a nice like to have a company that generates so much free cash flow, you know, those companies tend to get a higher multiple just because they generate so much money, right? Um, so I would own it. I would not. I would not personally be looking to, you know, have a substantial increase in position, right? But that said, you know, the, the contradictory thing here is, and, you know, this is where psychology comes into play. My, my Apple position is pretty large already. Like it's probably around 8%, 9%. Maybe I should be looking actually to <laughs> downsize it a bit or maybe run covered calls on it, but I'm not doing anything on it. Uh, largely because the other thing I have found over time is it's just so difficult to precisely value things, right? We just know that, you know, it's roughly around, by, by this measure, I think there's a decent chance of big market beating and we just let, leave it to the company to execute. And, you know, um, it, the, I guess the thresholds are not that high and I just leave it at that. And then they see what happens, right? And it has consistently over, um, overperformed its peer group. But yeah, there has been a lot of PE expansion and so on. So yeah, I would not be rushing into buy uh, at this, but I would as a core, I love, I love having it as a core. It just gives me, Comfort, it, you know, it doesn't move that much relative to some of the other stuff that I own that can drop by like sixty <laughs> percent. So um, it is just a core position in my holding. Well, yeah, this is this is a hard one, and I think it depends really on individuals and and what they're trying to do with their portfolios. Yeah, and you know, and it's funny because Brett and I spend a lot of time doing valuation work on, on a lot of the companies we own, but that first qualitative assessment you had in 2012 where you're like okay the customers are uh avid for any product that comes out and 
the business is just executing and has a history of executing incredibly well seem to be really the two most important things for that investment. So, I mean, I think uh, sometimes it just, like you said, the long and hold, the buy and hold approach, a lot of it, I would say probably 90% of it comes down to the qualitative assessments. I guess one more question from me, and then Brett has a few. Um, Warren Buffett is the largest outside shareholder, I believe, other than Vanguard and BlackRock. So the, the largest, Berkshire is the largest individual, I guess, shareholder. They, I think, bought in around kind of that 2016, 2017 timeframe. Do you think he's had any impact on Apple's capital allocation strategy? Um, I don't think so, because, I mean, uh, the buybacks started in Tim Cook's era. So buybacks were already happening. Well, you know, they were well and truly on its way. Um, And... So I don't think so. I don't think, you know, it's nice to have a cornerstone holder in Buffett uh, or Berkshire. But at the same time, Berkshire, actually, in my opinion, would be like, you know, there's a lot of variability and unknown unknowns with that company right now, right? I mean, um, both Charlie Munger and Buffett are, you know, uh, are very old, right? And we don't know what happens in a succession. We don't know what the successor is going to do with the portfolios. We don't know how much more active trading they're going to bring and things like that. There's a lot of stuff. We can say that it's going to be more of the same, but we just don't know. But I don't think, you know, it has, you know, there have been temporary bumps in the, you know, the PE and things like, oh, Buffett bought, so it must be good, must be value. But I don't think there's been any big changes in their allocation, like capital allocation strategy. And, and when I say capital allocation, I mean it broadly in terms of the share buybacks, so, you know, putting that money for investing in different projects. They're very, very measured in, you know, the R&D is very measured relative to other companies. Um, here's this fun fact that people don't know. Well, almost all the big tech report non-gap numbers. Apple always reports gap numbers, has, has reported all those gap numbers. So you, you need to kind of adjust the Apple's P of whatever is actually the gap P. Whereas the other people's the P's that we see is all, you know, the diluted, normalized, blah, blah. P. Their, their, uh, their SBC is also very modest. So a lot of these things uh, for Apple are um, are quite uh, quite unique to Apple. There are actually very few companies that are like this in terms of um, yeah. So, and, and I think to, going back to 2012, 2013, I think the biggest thing that at that point was that post Steve Jobs, we did not know what was you know there was a lot of uncertainty as to you know did we lost an innovator, what's going to happen. Uh, but as I like to tell people, is um, Tim Cook is the swan song of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs did two things uh, before dying. One was put Tim Cook in charge and the other was to tell people do not think like Steve Jobs. And I guess the third thing was he built the Apple campus. Um, but those were the things that he did for the longevity of the company, right? And, and I think Tim Cook is a very underrated leader. So I guess I guess if we at a longer term risk is who is the next leader for Apple? That's very unclear, right? And, and that I think is a risk because you want a leader like Tim Cook who can navigate politics and, you know, the relationship with customers and so on really nicely. Yeah. And speaking of risk, I want to hit that before we close out, you know, no company is riskless. There's one that's big, at least in my mind, and then maybe you disagree. And there's one that's smaller that could have a potential impact, but I still think, you know, wouldn't be detrimental is the first one is just any exposure to China both from a consumer standpoint and a supply chain standpoint, specifically with Taiwan Semiconductor. And then second, 
could antitrust legislation or any sort of that type of thing really have a big financial impact? So curious your thoughts on either of those um, situations. Yeah, so I have broad thoughts on the China thing. So I think like, here's the thing, I, the way I look at China. So uh, yes, there are some tech companies that don't have exposure to China, but in, I can't imagine a scenario in the world where there is a huge conflict between say, you know, let's say the West and China, because that impacts every consumer company, that impacts every consumer, that impacts all of us in so many different ways, right? So it's, it's, and I don't, I don't think there is a good, you know, knowing, you know, there's, there's no way to position yourself in this, you know, I want to be China safe, so-called. Right. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, well, you know, when you won't be wearing shoes, shirts, you won't get <laughs> maybe some of your cereals and food items, you won't get your cars um, and, and, and all of those all, all of those things. Cost of living is going to go up. Uh, there could be nuclear war, all of those sort of things. Right. So I think there's no. Uh, so I, I'm, as an optimist, I believe that things will work out uh, and things should work out um, because there's just too much for everyone to lose in, in this situation where things get ugly with China, right? That doesn't mean that they wouldn't compete and they would be using, you know, like things like, you know, your legislative policies and investment decisions to, you know, tackle and block each other. That's only to be expected. And I think that's going to continue to happen. By so that, that's one. So I, don't, I actually de-weight China, because on the, uh, the risk, largely because you want to be playing and you want to be engaging with everyone to have an impact. So non-engagement is actually not useful. So I would, I would expect that a company should try to actually be in China and it's the second largest you know, market to be in in many ways, right? So if you just give up on that market, then you've given up on opportunity for revenue growth and opportunity for influencing customers. So that's one. Um, antitrust, okay, so I look at antitrust as... The antitrust issues, I think there's a lot of nuance there. The problem I see with antitrust regulation is not revenue. That's not the problem that, you know, they mandate because Apple could take a smaller cut of its digital goods or Apple could take a smaller cut of payments. And none of those things are actually that material to Apple. I think what is really material is if, like, you know, if regulators basically require things like sideloading it's just gonna it's gonna make the i think regulators have a way and regulators are really poor decision makers because you know i think we should just make let the capital markets make the decision because i'm just you know i i, I just don't like the red heavy-handed regulators deciding what cables are going to be put into my computer um you know what app you know how should an app market run there's competition there's app market opportunities and people can decide uh, whether they want, you know, if, if they don't like Apple's ecosystem, they can go to Android, right? It's not like this, you know, it's it's insurmountable difficulty. They, each company makes it easy to switch from each other. But I think that the problem is that if if regulators regulate such that the integrity of the app store is destroyed, that has an impact on experience. Now, I think companies in general, tech companies are able to uh, think three steps ahead, whereas regulators today are thinking about stuff today and they probably get replaced, bureaucrats get replaced by other people. Um, so there, it could be that Apple itself disrupts the app store business model enough that, you know, so there's the point, case in point would be that the app store is not that relevant for things like wearables, right? Maybe the app store is not gonna be that relevant for things like uh, a Vision Pro. And, you know, App Store is not that relevant even for things like Mac, right? So, 
the, the, you know, maybe it doesn't matter for iPhone, maybe it matters, I don't know. But I, I think there is that risk that it can make the experience bad or worse. All right, let's wrap things up. Uh, you already mentioned, you know, some of the risks kind of play into this as well. But just as we close things out, anything else that you're looking at as sort of a pre-mortem, as sort of, okay, what would happen 10 years from now from an investment in Apple to go poorly? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing in my mind, the biggest risk that people don't talk about is who's Tim Cook's replacement? Who is the next person in, in, in line? So it clearly, and, and I think that's important because it's not, it, it potentially isn't Jeff Williams, who is the CEO today, who's an operations guy. Uh, he does actually manage the, the HCI design team. Uh, but, you know, that's after Johnny Ive left, he's sort of been managing the design team. Um, it's, but, but he's almost the same age as Cook. Right. So it's really not clear to me who is sort of the next. And the only person I can think who is young enough, uh, but has deep Apple strength, bench strength and experience is uh, Craig Fedri. I can't pronounce that name, but he's probably the youngest of the lot who has been, you know, has worked with Steve Jobs, has worked with Tim Cook, is deeply embedded into Apple. So he seems like a guy who could take over. But that's, I think, the big question is, is the next leader of Apple going to be able to navigate Apple? Because Apple is going to be a much bigger company. Uh, it's a much bigger company today than, say, 10 years ago, potentially, and they would like to make it even bigger uh, uh, in another decade. So you'd have to navigate, navigate a lot. So I think it, it's, it's really the leadership would matter. And those are certainly, again, unknown unknowns. You know, you can pick, pick someone. They might be likable, but they might make a lot of bad decisions. Um, but at the same time, the way I look at this is hopefully the DNA of the company is so solid that you know this company operates in a different way, has you know very flat hierarchies, doesn't it's not a very hierarchical company, works across uh, design systems and across teams very nicely. So hopefully the 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 genes of the company are strong enough that the new leader is able to work in and you know bring their own you know. Um, mark to the company like Tim Cook has over time. So I'm, I'm cautiously always optimistic. I try to be optimistic about any company I hold because otherwise it's very difficult to hold through difficult times. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say this is one of the best businesses in the world. Um, I think that's probably reflected with the reflected in the market cap. Um, but I think you're right. There's definitely got to be a lot of talent, uh, deep bench, a deep bench uh, across the executive suite there. That is all the questions we have though, unless Brett has any more, he's, he's giving me the thumbs up. So that is going to do it. Um, I guess for listeners that haven't heard of you before or want to follow more of your work, what's the best place to find you? Oh, look, I, I'm a lead advisor at 7investing. So, you know, you can find, uh, stuff that I write about on 7investing.com. Um, yeah, um, you know, if you're into reading research papers, and I've written a lot of uh, technical research papers, you can go to a Google Scholar and find my work uh, from my past life. But I'm assuming a lot of your readers are not going to do that. Uh, but yes, I dabble a bit in research, uh, still do that. Um, and uh, but I like write actively about companies that I like, mostly in the sort of the enterprise software, you know, consumer electronics, um, electric vehicle space. So I think, you know, there's a small set of companies that I follow. I follow them closely, but I cover them. Most of them I talk about on, on 7investing. So, and on Twitter, 
uh, uh, you know, I always have something to say about Twitter. It might not be always the best thing to say, but uh, there's something to say on Twitter. And it's a nice way to connect with people and chat about things and just exchange ideas. All right. Well, that is going to do it. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Indira Bond, for coming on the show again. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.